I love coming to Arlington Baptist Church. This is such a beautiful place to come. You're so blessed uh, to have this space to gather in and this wonderful congregation. And uh, I can say too with great confidence how blessed you are to have uh, Mike Law as your pastor. He has pastored me as a precious friend. I love uh, he, Lisa, and the kids, and uh, they have been very dear to us. I'll give you one example. A few months ago, my wife and I received a very hurtful email. And uh, I texted Mike, said, what are y'all doing tonight? And I forgot what he said. And I just said, well, I wish you guys would come and see us. And about an hour later, he says, we're coming. And uh, they just cared for us. That's just Mike and Lisa. And I'm so grateful for them. And uh, I could see uh, just the Lord's hand on them in this work here. I just want to just encourage you that. What a wonderful service so far. Dan and, and the team have done just a faithful, faithful job. I want to thank you for that and, and, and the music, the beautiful singing this morning. Uh, not many churches get what you get on Sunday. There's a lot of frivolous things, a lot of things done in the flesh. And already my heart's been helped by how you've been in the Word, praying the Word, singing the Word. Uh, you've had time in the Word in Sunday school. And so what an encouraging work of the Lord here at Arlington Baptist Church. Praise the Lord. Well, before I preach God's Word, I'd like to stop here and pray because uh, preaching is, is really quite pitiful. We are so weak as preachers. And we need the grace of the Holy Spirit to empower the preaching, to enlighten His Word upon the congregation. Let's, let's pray. With, would you pray with me real quick? Our great God and Father, we come to You in the Son and by the grace of the Holy Spirit, opening Your Holy Word this morning in this assembly. And we ask for Your help. Holy Spirit, you inspired the Scripture and you enlightened the Scripture. And we pray for your help. Help me to exalt Jesus. May the church, Lord, in their hearts see Jesus plainly this morning. And give us joy in knowing you. And give life to those who don't know you yet. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen i got to bring two of my boys with me this morning. Um, they enjoy watching life hack videos. Are you familiar with those? About crafts, about cleaning and organizing, all the little tricks you can do. Apparently, there's a website called lifehack.org. With no mention of the marriage covenant, they posted characteristics that you're in a committed relationship. I wanted to share with you a, a few of those things. They mentioned some strange things like... You talk about bodily functions together. Just leave that where it is. They also mention though obvious ones like you spend significant time together, uh, including each other in regular purchases, vacation together, going out of your way from one another, making decisions based on the other person's situation. Well, I want to ask you this morning, what do you know about being committed to something you know is worth it? Often we have to be convinced that what we commit to is worth it. Are you open to committing to something you know is worth it this morning? I mean, just imagine with me something so worthy of your commitment that it indeed would take priority over your work, 
over your family, your physical comforts, because it only enhances your approach to every aspect of your life. Today, some choose to be committed to what we would call the now, right now. Power and pleasure are their ultimate goals, making the consumeristic mindset the way to fulfillment. Thoughts of eternity, death, thoughts of God are squelched by more work, more Netflix, more weekend adventures. And there are some who live for glorifying themselves today. They're committed to that. They're always working on their image, which staged photos and self-promotion. They're building their kingdoms, forgetting that God is their creator. But are those commitments what we were made for? I mean, think, is that what you and I were given life to do? I mean, isn't life a vapor? Weren't we made for something more significant than those things? Well, John Mark wrote to persuade us of this reality in Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. You see, Jesus transforms our commitments. He prepares us to face death. He brings us into a family unlike any on this disappointing earth. Let me give a little background here. God's kingdom, His world-changing reign in the lives of His people who trust in Him is breaking in in Christ. If you know Mark's Gospel, you know He wants to make that clear up front. Chapter 3 shows us that not all are excited about this. It threatens and upsets those interested, now stay with me, in maintaining their own righteousness and their hold of this present age. So let's look at the text now. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. And Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's holy word. Amen. Well, as you can see, the text there, Mark begins one story. 
then interrupts it with another, and then the two mutually interpret each other, highlighting the inability of the people to see the truth about Jesus. Jesus' own family and the teachers of the law are blind to his true identity. They both, in their own way, are hindrances. An unbelief is expressed here in concern for his psychological state in verse 21 and in a more sinister accusation there in verse 22. Those who should be insiders, as you can see in the text, become outsiders, currently to the blessings of the kingdom. Both groups are all about their best life now. They are worldly. They are like children, very short-sighted and closed off to what is worth their commitment. Here's the central point. If you're taking notes, here's a central point to the text I want to uphold for you this morning. Commitment to God. Commitment to God must supersede everything else. Must supersede everything else. Therefore, let us decide today if we are with Christ or not. Let us decide today if we are with Christ or not. Three themes I'm going to preach to you this morning to help us understand this better. They are worldliness, worldliness, belief, and family. Worldliness, belief, and family are the three points I'm going to preach to you this morning. Point number one. Worldliness. Are we worldly? Let's look at verse 20 and 21 again. Look at it with me. Worldliness is prioritizing something above God in your interests and affections. It's making this fragile world and what it offers you your focus. And it's displayed in our selfishness and our fear of people's views of us. Jesus draws a clear line here. Either... God is your treasure or this world is. And if you think that's too stark, too sharp a turn, just go home today and read 1 John. First sub-point, think about your motives. First sub-point here is think about your motives, verse 20. It highlights the consumer-oriented people there depicted in the crowd's behavior. They are on Him like folks on a Black Friday sale. They are making it where Jesus and the disciples cannot eat their meal at the house they've entered. They don't grasp who Jesus is or what His mission is. They want Jesus to only make their life better now through health, wealth, and prosperity to fix their earthly politics. Boy, I guess the Bible is still irrelevant, isn't it? I'm being sarcastic. No, they just they merely want Him to serve those purposes. They don't see their need for His cross yet. They don't see their need to repent of their sins. To repent of your sins means to take God's side against your sin. They think, like many around us today, that their problems are on the outside and not in here. They don't see, like us all, that we're rebellious towards God. You see, some folks are only interested with Jesus as long as He gives them what they want. They, like us, have made their personal desires and emotions their chief end of existence. And so they forget they were made to worship God and exalt His Son by His Spirit. They may confess certain things about God, but their life tells the truth. That is, God is dethroned for self. So you see the crowds here. 
They really are not interested in following Christ as they are in His handouts. But friends, King Jesus calls us to turn from the worship of self and to know life in Him who is so much more than this world. Second sub-point. Think about your anxieties. Think about your anxieties. Verse 21. His family is ashamed of Him. Jesus' own family is ashamed of Him. Try to imagine the grief that Jesus felt by His own family's behavior here. I mean, traveling some 30 miles to Capernaum from Nazareth, they sought to seize Him literally saying Jesus was out of His mind. You see that in the verses. They cared more about what the religious elite and culture thought. Don't you hate it when you realize you need someone else's approval? Isn't that miserable when you realize I am captive to this person's approval? We can go to great lengths to save face with those who really don't love us. That's a miserable life. And Mark doesn't dress up the truth. I love how honest the text is. He's not presenting Jesus as someone who immediately impressed everyone with the idea that He was God. Nope. Even his own family thought he was insane and they tried to save their own faces. Families can get messed up, can't they? You see, God's glory was not what they were first focused on here. If they, were on so, if they had social media accounts, they would have surely put a spin on this situation. So friend, where are you quick to conform to the world and slow to conform to God? Who gave you life? Who loves you? Where do we go to exhausting levels for everyone except God? You ever find yourself, why am I killing myself for this one and I'm giving so little to focus on King Jesus? Where are you ashamed of Jesus? At the party, the workplace, the neighborhood, the family reunion? But let me ask this, who's actually sane in this passage? Does the same person decide that this world is all there's ever going to be? Does that sound sane to you? Does an insane person know that this life is temporary and eternity is forever? Is it insane to yield to God? We can be worldly in our focus, in our shame towards Jesus, but thankfully Jesus offers us insane people hope in Himself. Commitment to God must supersede everything else. So let us decide today if we're with Christ or not. Number two, belief. Are we believing? Are we believing? And I'm going to focus on 22 through 30. This is going to be the larger point. You see, the truth about our commitments, they begin to become clearer. They reveal more and more. There's, you see... If there's anything in this text that comes out, is this. There's no neutral position as it pertains to Jesus. Either we will give glory to God or take up sides against Him. And now we see that aspect. Verse 22, consider your pride. This is the first sub-point here. Consider your pride. Verse 22, the scribes, the so-called, so put this in quotes, experts on the law, come down. That's the picture in the next. The text wants you to see this condescension. They come down from Jerusalem condescending to the people's level. They have no interest in the truth, but only in their way of life, if you know Mark's Gospel. They are worldly too. 
You see, many believe their position among their interest groups places them above God. And having no authority in themselves, they are audacious enough to try to discredit Jesus here. You see that in the text. Who has only shown the power, the righteousness, and the love of God. They want people to not take Him seriously. I mean, friends, isn't that what our culture, our own impulses tell us to do in unbelief and hatred of God? To not take Him too seriously today? We know there's commands of the Lord. We know His Word is righteous and true. And yet there's that impulse to delay and to not take it seriously. Friends, when we sit in judgment of God, it won't be long before we say foolish things towards the Lord. That's what we see here in the text. When stupid things come out of our mouths, we can trace it to what we think about God. And often in my own life, this flows from a self-righteousness just as it does these scribes here. And self-righteousness knows how to dress up words, doesn't it? But they really sound foolish, especially in the eyes of the Lord. I think we discredit God more than we realize. I think we do it when we grumble and live for ourselves because we begin to function in a way that seeks to dethrone God as judge. And we begin to judge the one who is holy in our unholiness and sin. That's the picture you see here unfolding in the scribes. Notice here, they don't deny Christ's power, but they impugn the source of His power. Rather than calling Him Son of God, they call Him a Son of Satan. And by the way, the victims of demons are never harmed by Jesus in, this te- in the Gospel of Mark. They're always set free. They're always given new life. You notice there in the text, Beelzebub exalted Baal. Baal the prince, Lord of the flies is a name that came to be used of Satan. And they refuse to consider what the demons know, that Jesus is the Son of God, empowered with the Holy Spirit to collapse Satan's realm, not expand it. Notice how they talk about Jesus behind his back. But I love it that he confronts them directly. That had to be a, a, a bit of an intense exchange. They're going around, you know, you know about this guy. And then whew, Jesus is on them and he's ready for a face-to-face confrontation. Second sub-point here, consider the authority of Jesus. Consider the authority of Jesus in verse 23 through 27. Verse 23, Jesus speaks to them in parables, analogies. And what you see with this is the crowds don't judge the parables. The parables judge the crowds. And he asks the captain obvious question. How can Satan drive out Satan? Sarcastically, why is Satan attacking himself? That makes, that makes total sense. That's the tone here. And verses 24 through 26, illustrating using a nation or a family engaging in internal warfare, the end will be disastrous. And so their hypothesis is as stupid as it sounds. But let me pause here just for a moment as Jesus has taught us about a kingdom, a family, a nation that's in war with itself. That's a true statement. And church family, you've got to remember that a divided family cannot stand. Satan is committed to causing division in the church, not to himself. So church members, look at all the unity you have together here at this church in your documents. Look at all you have in common at the cross of Calvary. Church members, you should loathe 
and abhor division over disputable matters. So if you involve others in the church in your beef about not getting your way, you are not following Christ. You are listening to the chief divider, not the chief shepherd. Back to the text, verse 27. Jesus reveals now Satan's realm is under attack. That's what's happening. The strong man is Satan, but Jesus is the stronger one. You see that? Jesus is tying up Satan and carrying off his possessions. If you know the context, those whom he controlled. And Jesus did this by exercising demons. And so Jesus frees people from demonic power. And this validates him. And those scribes know it's true. Now, you may be sitting here today and think to yourself, maybe you're doubting there's such a thing as demonic presence, demonic power, and demonic oppression. Well, sometimes there are very visible forms of it in great acts of evil and violence that is unexplainable in our world. The media, for example, when confronted with, let's say, Nazi death camps, human trafficking, The Jeffrey Epsteins or the Kermit Gosnells of this world often think that the problem was that these people were often underdeveloped. That their psychology had not reached its full potential. And they are slow to use the word evil and quick to use the term, you ever notice them say this? Barbaric. They can't bear the idea that there is a dark power in the world and they themselves might be subject to the prince of the power of the air, Satan. Friends, Satan enslaves people in all kinds of ways, but here let me give you two primary ways he does it. One is by misery and suffering, making us think there is no God worth trusting. You can hear this articulated in New Atheism today. The other is by pleasure and prosperity, making us feel we have all we need so that God is irrelevant. One is to lead us to say God is evil, The other is to lead us to say God is not needed. And friends, no human has the power to resist him unless a mightier force restrains him. Jesus declares that he is that victorious servant of the Lord from Isaiah 49 who will rescue captives from the true cruel tyrant. Jesus is the promised divine warrior, the Son of Man, on behalf of God's people, leading a new and better exodus. He tethers the ruler of demons from claiming any of God's elect. And the term translated bind uh, reappears in Revelation 20, the vision in which Satan is bound, preventing him from continuing to deceive the nations where God's elect are concerning the plan of God's salvation. Friends, the church with the gospel of the Son, with the power of the Spirit, is marching in and setting people free from sin. Jesus is still liberating people. How do I know? Because there's converts all in here today. When God chooses to overcome our rebellion by His grace, bringing us to repentance and save us from our sins, from Satan's bondage, nothing can stop Jesus. But it gets richer. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Friends, that's why we sing, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. 
His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. On that cross, He bore our guilt and God's judgment and our sin. And through His resurrection, Jesus overcame Satan's work for us and liberated any who repent and believe. Satan must operate, friends, subject to the stronger man's authority. The Son of Man. Satan's fate is sealed. But he remains active until his final destruction in the end. Friends, why do we need to see this point? Why do we need to see this point in Mark's gospel? Well, it's because Jesus shows Satan to be weaker, less attractive, and less satisfying. Praise God every time a sinner by grace prefers Christ over the temporary and deceitful temptations of the devil, Satan suffers a defeat. Christian, I want to talk to you for a moment. Does your life show the power of Christ like that? Because if it doesn't, you may not be a Christian. Can your families and friends see that Jesus is worth more to you than Satan's trash offers? Brothers and sisters, we should wake up tomorrow and say, Lord, show this glory through me. Let those around me see that Jesus is better than anything this world offers. And this is part of God's plan to bind Satan rather than purely immediately banish him. You see, cherishing Christ above all this world and Satan can offer amplifies the beauty of God that could never have been had if God had merely banished Satan from the world. God is putting on a display of His glory through His people in this fallen world for this particular time to tell this particular story. That Jesus is worth it all. God is putting on a display through His church. So walking with Christ in all circumstances, in plenty or in famine, sickness or, or health, Christian you get an opportunity to give evidence of His power over the evil one. Children and young people present this morning, if I could speak directly to you. When you see the saints of God persevering, you are seeing God's witness to you about how Jesus is better. Every heartbreak your parents walk through and say, blessed be the name of the Lord, is God whispering to you through them, come to Christ. Christ is better. The world is lying to you. Anyone, anybody can follow the way of the world. There, congratulations, you've gone with everybody else. Big deal, anybody can follow the way of this world. But only those who are set free by Jesus follow God. Jesus is ruling and binding and the church marches forward in the face of opposition and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Next sub point. Consider the Spirit's testimony. Consider the Spirit's testimony. Verses 28 through 30 is where I'm focusing now. Verse 28, Jesus in true, in true authority declares, I say to you, that's a big turn of statement. It's not him saying, well, tradition says, or my experience says, or my feelings say this. This is the Son of God, Son of Man speaking. I say to you, and he gives them good news first and then bad news 
about forgiveness. You notice that in the passage? Verse 28, he makes it clear that God will forgive all sin and all insults against himself. So if you're aware of your need for mercy, those words are sweet and precious. All sins can be forgiven. All sins can be forgiven. Sins of youth and sins of age, sins in thought, word, and deed may all be forgiven. All the ways we've we've rebelled in failing to do right, dishonoring our parents in sexual sins, and in the ways we've worshipped things over God may be forgiven if we come to Christ. The blood of Christ can cleanse it all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all these and hide these from God's eyes because of what happened on that cross. Oh, on that cross, Jesus is not some poor martyr, friend. Oh, poor Jesus. No, He's the Lamb of God that we sang about this morning. God came in human flesh. The second person of the Trinity became put on full humanity, body and soul, lived the perfect life of righteousness that you and I never did, and then went to the, that cross, the appointed place where He was crucified, shed His blood, bore our sin debt and guilt there at Calvary, and God judged Him in our place, in the place of any and all who would repent and believe. God judged Him and to prove that God accepted payment for our sins. He raised Jesus from the dead. Christ is alive. And He's coming again to judge the world. Friends, if you don't know Christ, you don't understand the cross, I'm pleading with you this morning, come to Christ. Put your faith in Jesus. Turn from this world and its vaunted, miserable, lying pleasures and come to Christ whose life, whose life is in Himself. He's the giver of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Come to Christ. I'm pleading with you. Put your trust in Jesus. The blood of Christ can cleanse all your sins. Past, present, and future. Hallelujah. What good news. All your sins can be forgiven if you'll come. If you'll come to Christ. Some of you today, you've never trusted in Christ. You need to put your trust in Him today. The righteousness of Christ can cover all these and hide these from God's eyes because of what happened at Calvary. Jesus bore our sins so that we could be forgiven. When we put our trust in Christ, God gives us as a gift the righteousness of Christ to our account. We stand in Him justified by faith alone. But then verse 29 gives sobering news. The blaspheming of the scribes makes it necessary for Jesus to tell them about limitations in regard to finding remission from sin. Namely, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You see, blasphemy at its base level is insulting God. And verse 30 makes it clear how they were insulting God. They not only rejected God's grace in action, but ascribed it to the devil. The imperfect tense of the verb here could be translated, they kept on saying, it was a fixed attitude of mind. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is equal with the Father and Son, yet His role is different. He bears witness to mankind's hearts about Jesus. So this is the formula for the unpardonable sin. Being fixed on rejecting Jesus is to blaspheme and insult the Spirit of God. And this helps clarify what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. It's looking right into the light and turning to the darkness 
Rejecting the Spirit in such a fixed way, like this, is essentially abandoning any hope of salvation. Their irrational reasoning is a regular sign of conviction being resisted. I want to say that again. Their irrational reasoning is a regular sign of conviction being resisted. To ultimately place your allegiance against Christ is to, is to essentially align against Him and this will not be forgiven. This stubborn resistance to Jesus eventually expresses itself in treating Him as the ultimate evil in our lives. So there's a point when someone so rejects the Spirit's witness that it's over. And after this, there's no more opportunities for forgiveness. Only judgment. So friends, this is why when you hear the good report about Jesus Christ's victory over sin and death, it becomes clear that you should not harden your heart, but lay hold of Christ. Have you laid hold of Him? Are you clinging to Jesus or to your own righteousness? Are you thinking it's part Jesus and part me? You haven't gotten it yet. You've got to lay hold completely on Jesus as your only hope. Let me be clearer right now. To insult the Holy Spirit by rejecting His witness is to place yourself in a position of rejecting God's final salvation. You know, I recently read about a boy back in the 19th century who was from the country and decided to move to the city for a job. He did, however, promise his parents he would be in church on Sundays. After making new friends who invited him to, out to ride horses on Sundays, he began to remember his promise. However, he eventually agreed to go with his friends. And while riding through the city at about 11 a.m., he heard the church bells ringing. He began to feel heavy in his heart, but he kept on riding. The sound of the bells grew fainter and fainter in his ears. And when they got to the edge of town, he stopped saying to the others, the bells are getting fainter. If I keep on riding, I will not hear them anymore. I'm going to go back while I can still hear. Friend, can you hear the bells of invitation ringing? Can you hear them today? Perhaps you heard them when you were a boy or a girl. And that sound is, and that conviction has grown faint in your heart. Maybe at your grandparents' house or through a friend's witness to you about Jesus. Can you hear the conviction about sin, about righteousness and judgment to come? Can you hear that God in love, despite how awful we've all been, offers us Jesus, His one and only Son. And maybe that sound is faint to you this morning, but the call is the same. Come to Jesus now while you can. Don't get into an unforgivable position. And if you want to talk more about this after the service, members all around you would love to stick around and talk to you about knowing Christ. I'll be available after the service. I know Dan will too. Dan, you're right. Be here. See, Dan's going to be here. We'd love to talk to you about how you can know your sins are forgiven. And, and heaven is your home through Christ Jesus our Lord. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. Beloved church, let us remain sensitive our whole lives 
all of our lives to the grieving of the Spirit. Not just concern over blasphemy of the Spirit, but grieving the Holy Spirit. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Keep fellowshipping in Christ with the church. Confess your sins. Encourage one another. Stop being so focused on yourself and love God's people so you all persevere in the faith. And church, I want you to remember, we are none God. We don't know when someone has actually reached this point of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. We just know that it's a reality. Keep witnessing. Keep telling people about Christ. Keep sharing Christ. Keep calling for repentance, assuming no one is beyond the opportunity for forgiveness. Believe, commit to Christ, and call others to do the same. Commitment to God must supersede everything else. So let us decide today if we are with Christ or not. Number three, family. Are we in God's family? Are we in God's family? Now we're going to look at 31 through 35. You see, our commitments display themselves, revealing exactly whose family we are part of today. First sub-point here, don't be confused. Don't be confused. Verse 31, the family reappears in the story. You see that? And in more than one way, at least right now, they are standing on the outside. That's deliberate in the text. You are to see them standing on the outside. The previous action, their previous actions allows Jesus to define true spiritual relationships in the kingdom of God now. You see, you can't be physically born into this nation or kingdom. I don't care who your parents are. I don't care who your mama, your daddy is, your grandparents. I don't care who you work for. There's no way in that way naturally, physically. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And this new life takes on a new shape. It shapes us in a new way. And 32 through 34, again, highlights now the crowd again. They are spectators, remember? Focused on the family's requests. They want to see the family drama play out. They want to see the miracles play out, the social tensions. They are the worldly church members, if you could put them in a category. And so Jesus asked a sharp question to them. Who are my mother and my brothers? Who is my family? Is what he's, excuse me, who's my family? And he looked at those in the circle that were sitting around him. He said, this is my family. Unless you read 34 and 35 as deeply shocking, you haven't gotten the message. Some of you perhaps don't feel family ties that strong today. Maybe you come from a family that's not, not that big of a deal. Some of you come from family that's it's, it's clannish. There's this strange subculture that that, uh, that exists when you all get together and it's intense and there's this like strange loyalty that can kind of be imposed and there's favoritism and yeah some of you are having PTSD as I'm describing family life right now but notice here that those who sit on the inside at Jesus' feet those who draw near to him and those who stand on the outside they have false assumptions so don't be confused about who the family of Christ is which are you today? Church members, have you ever been to a family reunion and realized you don't have that much the fellowship you wish you had? I've been to those reunions. Why am I here? You ever been there at a reunion and thought, I should be doing something else? Well, that's because spiritual ties, brothers and sisters, can be closer than physical ties. Amen. Jesus changes everything. That's why when you are close to your church family, your church, that's why they feel like family. 
That's why when there's death in the life of a church, it feels like you've lost a sibling or you've lost a father or a mother in that church. Jesus puts that in us. And the more you share your fellowship in Christ, the more the bond grows closer. Some of you today perhaps need to recommit to faithful, faithfulness to Christ's family here at the local church. So don't be confused. Last sub point, don't be left out. Don't be left out, verse 35. While people are still thinking about the bomb, the truth bomb Jesus just dropped in there on them, he gives a striking answer. Those who do God's will, well, they reveal that they are in the family of God. They are the family of Christ. And God stated, friends, God's stated will for you is that by grace you repent and believe, turn from your sins, and by faith receive pardon in Christ Jesus. What's the will of God? Step one, put your faith in Christ. Who's going to live forever? Those who submit to Christ. The first step in walking the pathway of God's will is that you be saved. And so Jesus, friends, loved His physical family. But let me just say to be clear, Mary's most intimate relationship with Christ in eternity will not be that of mother to son, but of Savior to redeemed. Friend, if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, you cannot expect anything at all from God. He owes you nothing except judgment. He's not obligated to you and I, even in the slightest sense. But we, being made in His image, are obligated to give Him our worship. But here's the wonderful news here. Look at how universal the invitation of Christ is. It's open to all, excluding none. Whoever, you see that in the text? Embracing all those who truly become His, He alone. So get the logic here. Membership in God's family by grace is evidenced by obedience to Christ. That's why we read about in 1 John this morning. It's more important that this family is more important than our, our human families. And how comforting this is for those today who lose their, their earthly families because they have chosen to follow Christ. And maybe that's you here today and this church has become a precious family to you. One like you never imagined. Our brothers and sisters overseas have to deal with this all the time. Church, we should find a way to become the family of God where everyone, married or single, childless or not, can flourish in love. In our increasingly fake friend world, you know what, friends? Warm relationships among the members of God's people take on major importance. Your church is not just some add-on. It's critical to who we are. The church should give the loving, personalized care that many people find nowhere else. We are the people of the gospel. Full of refugees. Displaced by sin's hold. Displaced by our former uh, rebellion. But rescued in Christ. So if you're a visitor here today, I want to be clear. As you look at true believers in this room this morning, you're looking at refugees rescued by Jesus. This is, a, this, is a, this is a refugee camp. This is a hospital for those who know they are sick and need the healing of Christ. This is God's family. So church, cultivate a family environment meaning emotional, physical, and spiritual needs showing love to one another. How are you going to do that today? Can you think of somebody in the room 
who needs you to encourage them today. Don't sit around waiting for somebody to come to you all the time. Who are you going to encourage and care for and in obedience to Christ today? Love like the family of Christ. Set up mercy ministries, recovery groups, one-on-one discipleship, youth mentoring, mother support, and so on. Be the family of God. Because we are those who obey the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of the Spirit. Well, let me conclude. What's it going to be? Commitment to pleasure? Consumerism? As your focus? Commitment to your glory? To those who really don't care about you and then die in your sins? Or realize you were made for God, trust in His Son, His life, death, and resurrection, and commit to His kingdom, allowing Him to transfer your life by His grace and bring you into the fellowship of His family. I pray you'll choose Christ today. Let's pray.